Would you please uh, turn with me in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Jude? This evening, we'll look at uh, three verses in Jude, verses 8 through 10. So would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God will stand forever. Let us pray. Our great God, we thank you once again for your word, for this time we have to spend in the book of Jude. I pray, O God, that you would illumine the text of Scripture by your Holy Spirit, that we might see Jesus Christ clearly, that we might better understand your word, that we might know how to live in light of it, how to follow after Christ faithfully all the days of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout this uh, short letter, these uh, mere 25 verses, Jude urges his readers, those, remember, who are called, who are loved by God, who are kept for Jesus Christ, he's urging them all along the way. He's, he's calling them to do something. And his primary goal is to urge them to stand firm in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Not only that, though, they must also contend for that faith, stand firm in the faith, contend for that faith, fight for it against men who have crept into their church, who have infiltrated the, the upper echelons of church leadership and who are seeking to pervert the grace of God into sexual immorality, into sensuality, into licentiousness, and who are also, by their actions, denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude has many hard things to say to these Christians who have allowed these men to infiltrate their churches unchecked. The church leaders have in some ways neglected their duty to the poor sheep among them and have allowed these wicked men to come in and to distort or ignore the truth of God's word. And so Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, the brother of our Lord himself, steps in. He speaks a hard truth. And he's calling out evil doing and wickedness for what it is, namely rebellion against God most high. Unlike far too many supposed gospel preachers today, Jude is not concerned with itching his listeners' ears. He's not trying to coddle these Christians by avoiding the thornier issues of doctrine or of life. No, Jude is instead applying the truth of God's word directly to the lives of these believers and the churches in which they worship God. He's 
using the word of God as a scalpel to cut away from the churches that cancerous flesh. Jude is here in, throughout this book calling out error. He's bringing their focus back to the core principles of the faith. The life, the death, the resurrection of our Master and our Lord, Jesus Christ. The last time we were together, you and I saw that in verses 5 through 7, Jude uses three different Old Testament examples of people who proved unfaithful to God's commands. And so God condemned them for their disobedience and their infidelity. The Israelites wandering in the desert grumbled against the Lord's provision. So God banished them from the land. He didn't allow that first generation of Israelites into the promised land. Likewise, the angels or the sons of God, who in Genesis 6 didn't stay within their position but instead sought to take for themselves wives from the daughters of men, something which was expressly forbidden by God. And they were condemned for their actions. And then, of course, in verse 7, we see the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, those wicked cities along with the surrounding cities that indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires and were destroyed. That phrase, uh, unnatural desire, in, in the original Greek, that literally means other flesh or strange flesh. That's what the, Sodom, uh, the, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were doing. They were pursuing strange flesh. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says that to go after strange flesh is the same as to be given up to monstrous lusts. For we know that the Sodomites, not content with the common manner of committing fornication, polluted themselves in a way most filthy and detestable. End quote. And Jude tells us that the just reward for this wickedness, for sinning against God in unnatural and evil ways, is to suffer the flames of eternal fire. Jude's point in verses 5 through 7 is that just as God brought punishment to these Old Testament sinners, He too will not withhold His condemnation from those men who are attacking the church or from any sinners who remain in their wickedness and unfaithfulness. God's punishment against sin is severe but it is also just. God provides, of course, salvation for His people, though. Gives them a way to be redeemed for their salvation in Christ alone. And all those who believe in Him will be saved. But all those who are outside of Christ will be condemned. Well, Jude not trusting that his readers have gotten the point just yet and feeling the need to pile on just a little bit more, continues talking about the condemnation that these sinners are bringing upon themselves for their 
wickedness and their licentiousness. And what he says in verses 8 through 10 is that just like these Old Testament sinners, the men who have come into these churches that Jude writes to sin in similar and grievous ways. And this is what he says in verse 8 that we just read. Look at, look at these ver- this verse again with me, verse 8. Jude writes, Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. These men who have infiltrated the church sin in similar ways to those Old Testament sinners that he talks about in verses 5 through 7. And he explains in this verse what it is that those people are doing. The first thing that Jude says about them, these, these men in the churches that Jude is writing to, is that they have infiltrated the church and that they rely on their dreams. These people rely on their dreams. By this, Jude means that these men are claiming uh, to have some sort of some sort of divine revelation besides that which God has given to all people in creation and to his covenant people in his word. Instead of relying on the ordinary means by which God reveals himself, these opponents claim to have received visions from God, that God is uh, telling them what to do, telling them certain things to do that as Jude points out, are directly contrary to God's written revelation. These men, then, are false prophets. They are claiming to hear from God, but they're simply doing whatever they want. They then use these dreams that they have supposedly had as their excuse for downplaying the importance of God's law, sometimes doing the exact opposite of what God commands them to do. Instead of making sure that the teaching that they're bringing to God's people is based on God's word, these people make things up. They do whatever they want in the name of this secret revelation from God. What Jude is is telling us and what I am saying to you now is that if someone tells you that they've received a direct revelation from God, you run away. Run away. The first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith deals with the doctrine of Scripture. And in the first paragraph, the divines write that it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare, that his will, and to declare His will unto His church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. Do you see what the divines are telling us? God gave us his word, in part, so that we would not be, as Paul tells the Ephesians, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Without God's word, you and I would be open to 
the corruption of the flesh, the divine say. Not only that, but we would also open ourselves up to the malice of Satan and of the world. These are the very things that Jude's opponents have brought into the church. Corruption of the flesh, malice of Satan, malice of the world. Instead, instead of relying on the sure word of God, they are relying on their own dreams, their own idiosyncratic interpretations of what God has said and are opening themselves and the church up to all kinds of destruction and condemnation. Dear ones, God gave us his word, which strengthens our faith and guides us in the way that God would have us to go. Sadly, there are many people today, Christians even, who claim to receive direct revelation from God. How do we make sense of this? I think one of the first things we have to acknowledge is that God can do whatever he pleases. God is free to reveal himself in whatever way he wants to whomever he chooses. And yet at the same time, the ordinary ways that God has chosen to reveal himself are through creation and through scripture. So if someone says God told them to do something or that they've received some sort of word from the Lord, the next words out of their mouth had better be scripture. Because this is the only sure word of God. I think all of us can recognize the problem with a book like Jesus Calling, which seeks to put words into Christ's mouth. The author herself claiming that she received the words in that book and books like it directly from Jesus. That is nonsense. And it must be avoided. It must be condemned, books like that. But there are also some more subtle ways that the same kind of thinking has infiltrated the church today. There's a very well-known and infamous PCA pastor who has said in the last, that, that a few years ago, God told him to come out, to announce to his church and the broader world that his homosexual desires, though he doesn't act on them, are what govern his life in many ways. I listened to a podcast interview with this gentleman just last week in which he said more than one time that, God, that quote, God told me to make this pronouncement without explaining what that looked like or how he knew it was God supposedly speaking to him and certainly without citing the chapter and verse from the Bible which says so. You and I must be constantly vigilant We must make sure that we're living our lives in conformity to God's word. For God's word is, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the only rule that God has given us to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him, which is our chief end. But in order to do that, in order to to have our our guard up against God, those who would seek to tell us something contrary to God's word, we have to know God's word. We must study it, 
Hide it in our hearts. Talk about it with family and with friends. We must hear it read and preached in church. Do you do this, dear one? Do you study Scripture? Do you memorize Scripture? Talk about it with your friends and your family? This is something we must continue to do. For people will always come in trying to get us to go along with whatever they say, uh, or whatever it is that they're trying to do, and, and claim divine uh, revelation in order to do that very thing. Just like these men were relying on their dreams and yet leading people astray. But Jude then goes on. These people who rely on their dreams, they also defile the flesh, he says. They defile the flesh. They pursue those unnatural desires or that strange flesh that those people from Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities went after as well. Remember, these are men who, as Jude says in verse 4, turn God's grace into sensuality, who uh, turn it into licentiousness, and who thereby deny Christ through their aberrant sexual behavior. The antinomian tendencies of these men infect the way that they use their bodies. They're likely claiming their freedom in Christ give them, gives them license to live as they please. This kind of, of attitude, this antinomian or against the law attitude was common and still is common, but it infected other churches as well. For we see that it, inf it infected the Corinthian church. Paul's teaching of freedom in Christ led some of the Corinthian believers to think that Christ doesn't care how we live or that the way that Christians use their body is something indifferent and is something about which God's word doesn't speak. This is simply false, as Paul shows the believers in 1 Corinthians. He says, you were bought with a price, so you must glorify God in your bodies. These opponents defile the flesh, but they also reject authority. They are revolting against Christ's authority, denying his lordship over their lives. This rejection of Christ's authority is a perennial issue, one that affects the church throughout all time and even plagues the church today. In a Table Talk magazine article from 1991, the theologian scholar J.I. Packer wrote this. He said, quote, If ten years ago you had told me that I would live to see literate evangelicals, some with doctorates and a seminary teaching record, arguing for the reality of an eternal salvation, divinely guaranteed, that may have in it no repentance, no discipleship, no behavioral change, no practical acknowledgement of Christ as Lord of one's life, and no perseverance in faith, I would have told you that you are out of your mind. Stark, staring, bonkers is the British phrase I would probably have used, end quote. 30 years ago and more, a controversy arose 
in the evangelical world in which certain leaders taught that you can have Christ as your Savior without having Christ as your Lord. They said, you can come to faith in Christ, but you can still live however you please. That, in fact, to claim that Christ has the rights of lordship over his people's lives, that that Christ can tell his people how to live, is to hold to some form of works righteousness, they said. They claimed it was a fundamental denial of the gospel. There were some who claimed that so-called lordship salvation, which is the, the formal title given to this controversy controversy and discussion, that lordship salvation was legalistic and anti-gospel. One man even claiming that lordship salvation was, quote, satanic at its core, end quote. This denial of Christ as Lord is still present, still a, a very present issue in the church today. Pastor once told me that if a man who had a live-in girlfriend was converted under his ministry, that he would not immediately tell that man to move out. That he would uh, say that this, this man could keep living with this woman who was not his wife and still be a faithful follower of Christ. That this pastor would eventually have that conversation or hope even, even more so, hope that the man would come to that conclusion on his own, but that he would wait to call him to obedience in that area of his life. That is a true story. And it's madness. Madness. That's not the way any of this works. Christ must be our Lord. He must be Lord if you're going to have him as your Savior. There's no other way that salvation can work. When Christ saves you, he saves all of you, not just a part of you. You can't cordon off sections of your life and say, well, Jesus, you can have most of me, but this part over here, uh, I'm going to keep this to myself. No, Christianity does not work that way. Christ is not half a Savior. He is a full, complete Savior. So, dear ones, I'd ask you, is Christ your Savior? If He is, then He must be your Lord. Are there areas of your life that you're cordoning off, like these men rejecting Christ's authority, claiming salvation but denying the Lordship of Christ? Are there sections of, or parts of your life that you're cordoning off, trying to keep out of Christ's reach? You must give them over to. The first of Martin Luther's 95 theses is, quote, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Is your life one of repentance? Are you constantly seeking to bring your life in conformity to God's word? This is the calling that that Christ places upon all of our lives. This is what we must be doing, living in conformity to his word with Christ as our Lord and our Savior. If we want salvation in Christ, 
he demands certain things of us. Well, the final charge that Jude brings against these opponents in verse 8 is that they blaspheme the glorious ones. In order to clarify what he means by this, Jude does the opposite and uses an extremely confusing illustration in verse 9. However, when we properly understand Jude's illustration, we'll see that Jude we'll see exactly what Jude means by blaspheme the glorious ones that he says that he he levels this charge against the people in these churches. And we see this illustration that he uses in verse 9. This verse which says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. This verse is probably one of the most confusing in the New Testament. The book of Jude actually had a difficult road into the canon of Scripture because of this verse, along with verses 14 and 15. Um, Ultimately, of course, Jude is in our Bibles because it is God's word. It's beneficial to God's people. And I pray that as we work through this difficult book, we will see just how beneficial it is. But the reason that verse 9 was so problematic to many um, believers is that the story Jude alludes to is from an extra biblical book, um, meaning an, an old book with a Jewish or Christian background, but one that was not included in the Bible. That book, called Assumption of Moses, was a first-century book written around that time, known to early Christian writers like Clement of Alexandria. Unfortunately, the only copy of the book known today is an incomplete Latin manuscript that doesn't have an ending, which is the exact portion that Jude refers to here. Well, the part of Assumption of Moses that Jude quotes in verse 9 is an expansion on the biblical story of the death and burial of Moses that's found at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And to help us better understand the point point that Jude is making, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34, and we'll read verses 1 through 8. Deuteronomy chapter 34, these final verses that close out the Pentateuch, we see in here the, the death and burial of Moses. Let's read just the first eight chapters, or eight, eight verses of this chapter. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days 
Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. These verses in Deuteronomy chapter 34 mention that God himself was the one who buried Moses. Somewhere, no one knows. No man was to know where Moses was buried. And the author of that book is saying that even to this day, no one knows where Moses was buried. But the Jewish tradition, those writings that that were formed uh, to help explain Scripture, some of the Jewish tradition said that it was angels who fulfilled this task on God's behalf, who buried Moses. And also they said that, these, uh, that, that during this time, the devil was very interested in taking Moses' body, um, in, in, in using it in a certain way. The reason uh, that no human could know where Moses was buried is that God knew, because of the position that Moses filled among the people of Israel, that they would be tempted to venerate or to worship his body. That like some medieval Christians and even some Roman Catholics, they would seek to hold on to portions of his body as relics and to to worship them or use them as sort of lucky charms or talismans. The Lord our God knows the depths of human depravity and he knows that people will worship and serve the the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And so what he does is he prevents Israel from knowing where Moses' body is buried. We can see why this would be a legitimate concern. The Israelites themselves kept that bronze serpent that the Lord created to ward off fiery serpents, and they eventually began to worship it generations down the line. This image-based or, or this uh, worship of, of tangible items was so prevalent throughout the ancient Near East, and God's burying Moses would keep people from searching for his body, and from using it in some sort of idolatrous worship. But the devil, again, according to tradition, wanted Moses' body so as to draw God's people into idolatry or into false worship through created things. So what does all this have to do with what Jude is trying to tell the Christians here? Well, Jude is using this story to drive home his overarching point, and that is that the opponents are insolent and haughty men. They are condemning the things of God, the messengers of God, and the leaders in the church. These opponents speak ill of God's people, God's ways, and the shepherds that God has raised up in the churches. They are, Judah saying, the exact opposite of Michael the archangel. Even though he was in a position to oppose the devil, the father of lies, the one person deserving swift and direct opposition, Michael did not call Satan the slanderer that he is. But instead he said, the Lord rebuke you giving the devil over to the Lord's judgment. The New Testament scholar Gene L. Green says this about this verse. He says, quote, Michael deferred to the Lord and gave way for him to be the executor of judgment and punishment. In the end, Jude's point fits neatly into the structure of his arguments up to here in verses 5 through 8. 
the heretics have overstepped the boundaries, as had Israel, the fallen angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah. By way of contrast, Michael, who seemed for all the world to be in a place to rightly judge the devil due to his positioning, the attendant powers ascribed to him as archangel, refrained from doing so, giving way to the Lord as the one who is truly the judge. The arrogance of the heretics is brought into high relief by this claim, end quote. Now, unfortunately, we don't know precisely what the opponents are saying, but it seems likely that they were disparaging the glorious ones, God's angels. Not only that, they're also flouting the authority of the church's leaders, speaking out against those that God has placed in authority over the churches and whom the Lord has tasked with the shepherding care of God's people. This is a serious charge that the, the, these, these rebellious sinners in the churches are, are, are speaking out against God's chosen leaders. They are doing exactly the opposite of what Michael did. Instead of rebuking Satan, calling him a, a, a blasphemous sinner and condemning him, Michael said, the Lord will rebuke you. The Lord will judge you. These men, as he says in verse 10, talk about things they don't understand. They condemn things they are not aware of, and they bring themselves under God's judgment. And this is a serious charge, this uh, speaking out against the people that God has placed in leadership in the church. The church's leaders have been put there by God's good will. And for that reason, they are to be respected. Now, of course, all leaders, even in the church, should not be blindly followed because all human leaders, yes, even leaders in the church, are sinners and can and do make mistakes and sin against God's people. There are certainly times when constructive criticism is beneficial to God's, to, to the leaders of the church. But what the opponents were doing was not constructive. No, they were going behind the leaders' backs and, and trying to win the congregation over into their favor, trying to get them to follow along with the, the dreams that they had or the other uh, areas of life, that they're, or other things that they're doing to, to ignore God's law. These people were loudly criticizing the leaders to anyone who would listen. But this is the exact opposite of what God's people must do. The author to the Hebrews says this in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What this should teach us is that if we have a matter of concern in the church, there are ways to bring those concerns up to the elders. And you should do so in love and in peace. But the general attitude of God's people should be, as the author to the Hebrews says, obedience and submission to our leaders. Because God himself has placed them in that role. And they have difficult tasks to accomplish. Christ is king of his church. He is our chief shepherd. But he has placed under shepherds in all of our lives to care for our souls. Don't give those under shepherds reason to go about their task with groaning, for that is of no advantage to you, the author to the Hebrews says. 
And then we come to verse 10. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. There's still more that Jude needs to tell us about the wickedness of these perverters of God's grace. And he'll go on in the following verses to talk more about the condemnation that they're bringing upon themselves based on the things that they're doing. But he says in verse 10 that these men speak about things they do not understand, and in their ignorance, they blaspheme God. Instead of speaking out of their knowledge or their love for Christ and others, these men talk disparagingly about all that they do not understand. And we could see why they would do this, why they would be speaking uh, in these ways, uh, speaking about things in ways which they don't understand. They, as we've already seen, they reject God's revelation. They reject Christ's authority. They ignore and they um, openly rebel against God's commands to sexual fidelity. They blaspheme God's servants. And these men are brash and bold, brazenly speaking about things that they have no hope of properly understanding. And their ignorance, Jude says, plays a big part in their downfall and in their condemnation. They are condemned by things that they do not understand, even though there are some things that, like unreasoning animals, they understand instinctively. This is similar to what Paul tells the Romans in, chapter, in, in his book in chapter 1, that what can be known about God is plainly revealed to all people in the things that God has made. But in their unrighteousness, men suppress the truth. These men that Jude is talking to know what they're doing. But in their ignorance and their unrighteousness, they deny and suppress the truth of God's word. They open themselves up to the Lord's condemnation. And like Michael said to the devil, Jude is saying to these men, the Lord rebuke you. Jude is here showing us the utter depravity of his opponents. Nothing is beyond them. Nothing is too far for them, and therefore they must be rejected and ignored. They must be turned out of fellowship with other believers. These men are wolves in sheep's clothing, leading the faithful away from God's truth. They are, to use Paul's language in Romans 9, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and God will punish them so that God's people will not be led astray. Friends, God's word is abundantly clear. Even here in this small book at the end of our Bible, sin must be punished. Sinners must be held to account. And all those who live in wickedness, unfaithfulness, and unrighteousness will not receive God's blessing. They will not inherit eternal life, but will instead, like those from Sodom and Gomorrah, suffer the punishment of eternal fire. That is the punishment. That is the fate of all those who deny Christ. But God's word is also clear and that these are the ones Christ came to save. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the only people Jesus Christ saves are sinners. 
every one of God's children is a sinner, saved by grace through faith in Christ. And our great Heavenly Father loved the world so much, felt such compassion for the creatures that He had made in His own image, that He sent His only Son to earth to live a life of complete and total obedience to His Word. Every thought and deed, word of Christ was pure, unvarnished, untainted by sin. Christ came to teach repentance and faith, to call all people to faith in Christ. But he also died a brutal death on the cross, taking upon himself your sin and my sin. And on the cross, when Christ was nailed to that cross, your sin and mine was nailed to that cross as well. Christ became sin for you so that you and I and all who believe in Christ would not receive condemnation but would receive life and life everlasting. We must believe in Christ, live in conformity to his word, follow after Christ our Savior. But if you don't know Jesus Christ, urge you to repent of your sin. Don't follow these perverters of God's grace who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and think that they have license to sin however they please. Don't reject the authority of Christ. If he is your Savior, then he is your Lord. We must live like it. I must live like it. We must believe in Christ and follow after him all of our days. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. We pray that you would call all of your people to repentance and faith and that you would bring us all into conformity with your word that we would all live in light of the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he would be our savior and our Lord, our God and our King, that he would be our sovereign ruler. We thank you, O God, for the mercy and grace that you have lavished upon us in Christ our Lord, and we pray that you would be with us by your spirit now. In Jesus' name we pray.